Welcome back to Protagonists of Change. I'm Max Linville, Campus Minister at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, here today with Nicole Abadie, Director of Campus Ministry, and Darnell Miller, Catholic Outreach and Producer for Max Studios. We have a great show for you today. We're talking to Josh Elliott, COO of Wine to Water. Wine to Water is an international nonprofit that works on bringing clean water to the most poor and vulnerable. They're based out of my hometown, Boone, North Carolina, and we're releasing this episode on a special day. Today is World Water Day, and this episode is going to be talking about water and the work Wine to Water is doing. So when I was in high school, I remember um, we got called into the auditorium and I had no clue why. I was like, okay, we're all going to the auditorium in high school. And they said that they had a special guest that was coming to speak to us. And it was, I was in a math class and I was like, okay, it must be a math teacher or something. I had no clue what I was really walking into. And when we walked into the auditorium at my high school in Boone, North Carolina, Watauga High School, uh, shout out to Watauga. Um, this guy was standing there with a tattoo sleeve and a bottle of water or a bucket of water um, and was just like, okay, this is really weird. This guy doesn't look like a math teacher at all. Uh, and he started sharing to me um, and all the students there about this organization called Wine to Water that he uh, started and about the work that he was doing um, in the world. And I think it, what really stuck out to me in this work that he was doing was that like, he wasn't saying that you had to be this perfect picture of someone or this saint or all these things that you, to be able to make a difference in the world. And he spoke about this, uh, the issues of water and how he was bringing clean water to the world in his own unique way. And his name was Doc Henley. And after I heard that, I left that um, auditorium and said, I wanna be involved in this. And I knew I was gonna graduate high school and go to college and play baseball at Western Carolina. And I was like, I'm gonna go when I leave school and start a chapter. Cause um, I got to talk with Doc after the he talked and he shared about how you can do this thing in college. Um, there's been a, pe a couple of people that have done this. So I went down to Western Carolina and started this chapter and just really got involved in Wine to Water. And it really became a passion of mine to uh, find ways to raise awareness about the world's water crisis and also bring clean water uh, to people. And even if it was the smallest way, um, at Western Carolina. And I know after I left Western Carolina, I went to Holy Cross College to play baseball also and um, brought it up there as well because I just felt like there was this calling in my heart, this stirring to go out and serve those, especially in the in the field about water. And, um, and from there, uh, I really got to see hands-on what Wine to Water was doing when I went to Uganda. So when I went to Uganda in my junior year of college, I teamed up with Wine to Water and talked about how, how can we go see some of the work that you're doing there? And they had an organization, a partnership in Uganda. And we went onto the ground field and saw some of the work that they were doing with the filters and um, the clean water ceramic filters and everything like that. And it was just like one of these things that I was just like, how in the world does do all these people in Uganda not have clean water like we do in the United States? And I went home and knew that I wanted to do something different. I knew I wanted to go overseas and serve in a way that was more than bigger than myself. Something that like I knew I wasn't gonna be able to fix, um, but I wanted to get involved in it in some way. And that's really how I ended up going to Jamaica to serve for a year. But um, it really stemmed from this organization called Wine to Water. And that's really what inspired this heart for service in me. Um, so if you would have told me when I was in high school, uh, before that math class that I was gonna care about serving people in clean water, I would have laughed at you. Um, but after that math class, I remember being like, this is where I'm being called. I'm being called to serve those around me, especially those that are most marginalized. 
And today, um, you're probably wondering why I'm talking about this organization, um, what this has to do with this podcast. Uh, but today, we have a special guest with us, and he's one of the people that was really at the forefront of bringing the college experience and um, to Wine to Water and figuring out ways to make Wine to Water accessible to young adults and um, and continuing and continue growing the Wine to Water organization. And we have the COO here today, Josh Elliott, who is. Um, here to just kind of talk more about wine to water and the work that they do to give you a better glimpse because my version was very like rough around the edges and didn't really explain everything that they do but um wine to water is here and they're going to be talking with us about how they're being protagonists of change now today and tomorrow and in the future so josh if you could share a little bit about yourself and explain a tad bit more about wine to water yeah thanks max uh First off, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, really looking forward to talking to you. Um, you know, Wine to Water, it's, it's funny. I listened to your story and I was like, is this my story? Is that Max is telling? I'm like, I had the exact same story. I, I wasn't in high school, I was in college. But um, yeah, I had a very similar experience. Heard about this crazy organization, Wine to Water, and was like, I want to be a part of that. Like, what, what do I got to do? I, I want to come and help. And um, you know, the, the, my version, if you will, and they're eerily similar is, uh, you know, I, I heard similarly a doc speak at, at the university and talk about, um, you know, this world water crisis that, you know, at the time, uh, it was close to a billion people with a B don't have access to clean water around the world. And, you know, I was in college classes and I was like, how are we not talking about this right now? Is this guy even for real? And, um, you know, Lo and behold, Doc, you know, a few years earlier had himself come up against this staggering uh, statistic that around the world, over a billion or almost a billion people don't have access to clean water. And, um, you know, him, this is a, about 2004 range. Uh, he actually, you know, started to do some research. He was a bartender at the time in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, found out about this huge issue and was like, well, you know, I know how to pour drinks. Uh, I, I serve at the bar every night. Maybe I can get my regulars to come in and, you know, hopefully continue to drink a beer, but maybe throw a couple extra dollars towards this cause that all of a sudden I, I didn't know was so huge. And so, you know, long story short, Doc um, was able to do some pretty successful events, called them wine to water events there at his bar and um, was raised, raised some considerable amount of money. And, um, and over time figured out, all right, I got to find somewhere to put this money and found a, another organization actually here located in Boone, North Carolina, uh, and, and took the money to them and said, hey, I just want to give you guys this money and make sure that it goes to water. Like, that's what I'm passionate about. And those are a huge issue. I know nothing about doing this work, but uh, I'll give you the money because it sounds like you guys know what you're doing. And, um, you know, he was actually able through that, that relationship to, to get the opportunity to uh, experience firsthand what the water crisis is. And so our beginnings as an organization, Wine to Water, started actually in Darfur, Sudan uh, in 2004. And so, um, you know, there, Doc's actually spent a, a year there uh, doing a lot of well rehabilitation in the desert region of, of Darfur uh, during a, a pretty crazy time of government enforced genocide and, and unfortunately some very, very tough stuff. But fast forward, Doc came home and, um, you know, over the past um, little over a decade now, uh, we, we established the organization in 2007. Um, I personally came on board with the organization in 2009 uh, as a volunteer. Uh, and now today, uh, 
just this past July, we were able to reach our millionth person with clean water. So today we've worked in over 46 countries uh, and we currently have uh, five international offices, uh, Nepal, Colombia, Dominican Republic, and Tanzania, uh, and then here in the US. So uh, we're excited to be here, tell you more about the organization, but that's just a little bit about us. And um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, our purpose is just uh, to love on people and um, ensure that they got the basic needs, which is water, to, uh, to live a better life. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Josh. And I, um, I know in our church, we have Pope Francis, who speaks a lot about these justice issues, these issues of um, the environment and all these things. And in his encyclical, Laudato Si, Pope Francis says this, access to safe, drinkable water is a basic and universal human right. Since it is essential to human survival and as such as a condition for the exercise of other human rights, our world has a grave social debt towards the poor who lack access to drinking water because they are, they are de denied the right to life consistent with their inalienable right, dignity. This debt can be paid partly by an increase in funding to provide clean water and sanitary services among the poor. Mm. And I think um, just hearing our Holy Father talk about uh, how water is at the center, should be at the center of some of the work that we're doing. Because without water, students, kids aren't able to go to school. They're not able to find safe housing, all these things. Like water really is essential thing. We all need water to survive. And I think a lot of times we don't recognize that. And I know um, here in Houston, Texas, we just experienced a little bit of this and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, when we lost water during this winter storm, you saw people scrambling, trying to figure out how do I survive? And this is an everyday occurrence that happens across the world. And I think that's something that really stuck with me of, um, after this experience is like, how can I do something and bring this fire back? Because I think um, through my work, like I've done many other things, but like water is still at the core and the central part of like how we survive. And there's all these ways that we can get involved in bringing clean water. But some of the things that I do want to talk about, especially with this organization, Wine and Water, who's working to do this clean water work around the world is um, talk about how the work that they do really falls in line with some of the teachings in our church. And so as many of our listeners have heard, we have these things called Catholic social teaching. And um, it's a list of seven things, sometimes nine, depending on which list you're looking at. But I want to dive into a few of these um, and talk more about how Wine to Water lives these out every single day, because I think... Um, their organization is truly embodying what our church teaches and tells us to do. And um, the first one, I think is very basic, but I think it really embodies what Josh was kind of sharing at the end there, that it's there to, they're there to love people, make sure people have that, that right to clean water. And the first is um, human dignity. And how does your organization, Josh, I guess with this word human dignity, when you hear that, what does that mean to you and your organization when you hear the word human dignity? Uh, so it's such a cornerstone, Max, like, so our, our, our mission statement is to support life and dignity of all through the power of clean water. So it's not to drill wells, it's not to just do water work, it's to use that as a catalyst to support life and dignity of all. And I was struck by the quote that you, you shared there from Pope Francis, that last bit, inalienable dignity. You know, I, I personally did a lot of wrestling with this uh, in the past few years as we refreshed our mission statement because we have over the years and one of the things that really stuck out to me is, you know, there's two schools of thinking with dignity. There is, I can give you dignity. Um, and oftentimes I think we go into just dignity and understanding as, is this something that you can impart to someone? And what 
we try to live out and what our mission is, is not to impart it, is to give it because it is not something that we can give. It is truly there. It's always there. Some, you are born with it. And so our purpose and our work is just to recognize it, is to name it and is to uplift it and amplify it. And so I think it's, it's a slight shift in the thinking around dignity, but for us as an organization, we're always looking at and trying to hold ourselves accountable to the work that we do and to say, hey, we're not coming in to save anyone. We're not coming in to bring dignity. It's there. If anything, it's our, our job to use this, this small you know, piece of the equation to build a better life with water is to recognize it and ensure people in themselves see it. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like water. It's, it's there under the surface. It sometimes just needs to be tapped. And, you know, for us as an organization, um, in every way, how we grow our team, how we do our work, not just the type of work, but how we build in a community, it's all around that idea of, of ensuring that we are recognizing dignity, not bringing it to these places. That's awesome. I, I really like that just understanding of um, that. It's not something that we like can go in and just give. I think like we, a lot of us get caught up in that. Like we need to go there and we need to give the dignity. We need to do these things. Um, but it's there already. There's nothing that we need to do. They've been born with dignity. God gave them that dignity when they were born. And I think to just realize that is such a powerful and transforms the way you think about just like all these social issues that go on, especially water. And I think um, with that changing in the way that you think about this thing of, of dignity, uh, I think it really becomes something different when you start talking about all these things. If someone's already given dignity, there's not the, nothing you can bring. So there's this next term that we use a lot in our church called this preferential option for the poor and vulnerable. And basically what that is, is like, you see the dignity of the poor and vulnerable as the most important in, in the work that we're doing. And all of our decisions as an organization, as a government, as a policymaker should be with, have the poor at the center of that work that we're doing. And how does your organization, I guess, like experience that, especially with this transition of saying like, these people already have that dignity we're going to keep them at the center. Like, how does your, how does your organization do that? Yeah. I, I mean, I'd like to answer that, but first kind of give some context and honestly take some responsibility. And, I, and I'd say primarily us in the West um, in the developing world is we haven't done this right in the past. And we have a lot of work to do to climb out of that, you know, that bad history, you know, it's specifically even in the aid world around thinking that we have all the solutions and it's just, it, it's like not even half wrong, it's all wrong, right? Like we don't have all the solutions. And I think just starting there is the first step, right? And so for us as an organization, practically what that means is, you know, for example, in Nepal, where we do uh, more comprehensive community wash work, we don't do any um, technical infrastructural changes until we've sat down with the community members and listened, asked questions, ensured that we understand truly what they see as the problem and where their values lie, and to ensure that it's not a project, but that it is a partnership. It's something that we are coming alongside with them to do and to build something better. Um, and so, you know, for example, what that means is 
ensuring that we're establishing a local governance system. So before we put a, a, any water infrastructure in the, on the ground that we're working with local leaders and empowering them to say, hey, this isn't ours. We wanna work with you to build something that is gonna be yours and not just um, here during the project, but for generations to come. And so ensuring that they have that recognition from the beginning and that they are a part of that building of that solution and even the work itself um, then it becomes something powerful. That, that's the true key to sustainability, right? And, and lumped into every step is the recognition of that dignity at the personal level, at the communal level. Um, and then in turn, we get that, that, you know, it's like a mirror, right? Like they give that back and that, that there's that relational part that in some ways is healed because frankly, a lot of the folks that we work with, that is not how it's gone for them. You know, in some cases, we're coming back to fix old issues of organizations who have come in and completely breeze past that. So for us, you know, it's not about more, more, more. It's about how can we use this work to heal and also empower those generations to come with the work. So um, I, I don't know if that fully answers the question, but that is sort of what comes to mind when you say preferential option, because you know, you could, you could zero in on the community within most people, but that isn't the way that we work. We want to zero in on those who are most vulnerable and ensure that they have first um, preference, you know, literally. So I know that's awesome. I think like what I loved about everything you were saying there, this ties in all these. So a lot of times we break Catholic social teaching off to like, oh, this teaching, this teaching, this teaching, like what you just shared there shows that like these all tie in together. Like you talked about solidarity, like to be in solidarity with your brothers and sisters to hear their cries. Because the only way you can do this preferential option for the poor and vulnerable is to know what they need, to hear them, to be able to listen to them. And I think um, your, your example there just showed that. And, I, and the other thing too, is it's like, you're talking about how we're working at the most basic level. We're working at, um, at the most basic level to figure out how these local communities can make sure that they get clean water um, and it's sustainable and it stays there. And that goes to this teaching called subsidiarity, which is solving the problems basically at the most basic level. And you dove into that. And then um, you said like, everyone has this right to clean water, to education, all these things. And, but you also give them a responsibility to take part in it too. Y'all are not just going in there saying, we have the answer for you, we're gonna build this. You let them be a part of it. And I think this rights and responsibilities um, is really powerful is because like you have the right to water, but we also want you to be responsible for being able to take care of it and make sure it stays here with you. So I think like all the, that one answer really like encapsulated like all these questions that I had. And I think, um, but what I really want to dive in here though, is a little bit more about this like most local level thing. I think um, you, you kind of uh, explained like we work with the leaders and everything, but like, what does that look like on like building clean water? Like you build a community, a local community that cares about water, but like, is there an accountant? Is there someone that like knows how to work on water? Like, how does this all work? Like, can you yeah. dive in a little bit more about that for us? Yeah, I mean, this has been an evolution for us as an organization. And I think it's just natural, like as you grow as an organization, you have to figure out how do you scale and, and continue to do good work and stay true to your values and your mission. And I will say that for us, you know, I think it would be worth mentioning that, you know, about five years ago, it became very clear to us. This was right around the time we actually established that that new mission statement um, to hold ourselves accountable. Um, we realized that, you know, in the past we had done a lot of partnership work and it had been in spurts and shoots here and there in different parts of the world. 
but we realized, okay, if we're serious about supporting life and dignity of all through power, through the power of clean water, and we want to, you know, there's this thing that we talked about is like, we want to not just go um, uh, broad, we want to go deep um, in the figurative sense, but also in the literal sense. And, and what that meant for us is like, we've got to establish local teams on the ground that are not just someone who is a project manager for, you know, six months to get this, this community project done, but to actually empower leaders from the ground to be a part of organizational leadership and be a part of this work because we recognize we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. So for us, it was like, all right, we've, we've got to do that. And so what that ended up looking like was establishing, you know, the, the five offices or the four international offices that I mentioned, Roshni Karki, uh, is our uh, country director in Nepal. Uh, she actually helped us respond right after the earthquake. And so I'll, really quick, I'll share a story about what this kind of looks like. So if you're not familiar, 2015, the earthquake hits, uh, depending on who you're talking to in Nepal, 7.8, 8 point on the Richter scale, like massive earthquake that just, it started, I, I believe it was on the east side of the Kathmandu Valley and rolled across and roughly, you know, 20,000 people, you know, are, are affected, if not uh, injured and killed. And, you know, we as an organization who does long-term programming sometimes do relief work. Um, but in an instance like that, you see it on the news and you're like, man, I wish I could do something. But oftentimes you don't know exactly where you can. And uh, it's funny, we had a guy come in here in Boone, North Carolina, who was at App State and said, hey, I'm from Nepal. I'm flying back tomorrow. Can you guys help me? And, um, and we we're like, yeah, let's go. So we, um, we got him a bunch of filters, uh, actually some filters. I think that you guys are going to get your hands on here in a couple of weeks and, um, flew him back to Nepal. He got on the ground and with his local team of friends, colleagues that he knew in Nepal, I think there was roughly like eight or nine of them. They all had motorbikes, they all distributed the filters and went up into the hills, like the foothills. And when we say foothills in Kathmandu, that's like 8,000 feet up. So a little different foothills than we're used to here in the Appalachians. But um, they got out, were able to reach over 20,000 people with clean water like that. And we didn't even step foot over there. And not saying that it's better or worse, but you've also got huge organizations like the Red Cross and others who come in and, and drop in and they do amazing work. But I think what we realized was that is how we want to grow and build impact is through those local leaders because their networks, their understanding of the cultural nuances of the, the, the region and the, the, the recognition of here is the greatest need. We can never know that sitting here in our chair and if anything we need to find those people on the ground to empower serve ourselves and so you know for us what that came one of those people was Roshni Karki and so Roshni over the past five years has established a full-fledged uh, office you know she has accountants and she has a an education team she has an engineering team um, and they're all just beautiful amazing passionate people that do amazing work. And if anything, what I'd like to like, I guess, pin it up in, in, in sort of a bottom line, the way we view it is here in the US, we serve them. They are the leaders on the front lines doing this good work. 
It's not that they report to us in some ways, like we, we serve them in that. And the more that we can empower them and give them the resources and the latitude to go and do good work, the sky's the limit, right? They're going to always, always, um, overshoot the expectations and, and they have so far and that's just nepal i'd say it's true in every one of our regions um it's i will say it's messy you got to figure it out but it's always worth it and um we we've time and again felt like that is the best way to work yeah no and i i just kind of love that just like teaming up with the locals and working that way and i think one of the things that i uh i would love to just maybe like hear a little bit more about is like this this means there must be this great sense of like trust and like that you trust these people you trust these communities and like because you're just like completely like you're in Boone, north carolina and you just have to trust people and i guess like for you what is like trust like how is your trust growing i guess in like your personal life or even in relationships of just like tr trust is like now this like center point of wine to water like you trust right. these people to do the work that like you've invited right. them to right yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned that man like the 2020, I think for everybody, uh, was a pressure test on trust, right? Uh, and so even for us as an organization, you know, we have field teams and I'm used to being able to hop on a plane and go spend two weeks with people and been on Zoom calls for forever, right? And to your point, unless you have established trust, and I mean that in the, in the like nth degree, then you've got nothing, you know? And, and so for us, yeah, that is a cornerstone. Um, we, that, that relationship side, you know, not, no work can happen until we have that relationship and trust established. And for me personally, it's just been an education in itself around the value of investing time, energy in people. I'll, I'll say like one of the things that's interesting that I've always kind of shared with our staff here as I've grown um, and my responsibility here is, you know, one of our, our, our previous CEOs was here and he said, um, you know, this is when I was overseeing just our international programs. And I was trying to get personally, like my relationships built, right. And figure out, you know, how do I manage this? Right. And, you know, as a human, we often are like, we want to hold it tight, you know, and ensure that everything goes well, you know? And, um, and he was like, Hey man, just get on the plane. And I was like, but I got to figure out like, what, what do I need to do? And like, what's the need and, and what's going to be the purpose? And he's like, don't worry about that. Just get on the plane, man. And that coming back, you know, over time is like, you know, even when you can't get on the plane, it's just like, you got to invest in getting on the phone or shooting that message out and, and investing in that relational side, because unless that's strong, your program, the, the wealth that whatever it may be, is just not going to stand up and so for me personally I struggle with it because I'm a maybe a control freak a little bit um but you know that trust piece you know they never disappoint you know to be honest with you and knowing that that is where your time investment should be from a majority sense um it's a constant reminder and I think something that we in 2020 had to double down on mm -hmm. and you know last thing I'll mention here is we, we built that trust over five years 2020 hit and I'll tell you, our teams in the DR in Tanzania in 48 hours went from producing ceramic water filters to producing hand washing stations. Not by my idea, they just did it because they saw the need and they, and they knew that we trusted them to move and act and serve. 
Same thing in Nepal. They pivoted within 48 hours from doing community work to working solely in COVID wards and doing sanitation and hygiene work. And it wasn't a, hey, we want you guys to do this. We're going to roll out the strategy. They just did it. And it was because we had built that, that well of trust over the last five years. And they knew that if they acted and were, you know, protagonists of change, then we would be behind them. And so to me, like, that's sort of the most beautiful thing in some ways, like this 2020 has been a reminder of it's worth it. Keep investing daily in that process and it will, it will come back tenfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, and I just want like our listeners here today, just like to think about your organizations, the places you work, like if you work with the poor or if you work with coworkers, like how much do you trust them? Like, how can you grow in that trust of working with your coworkers? I think like that relationship, because I think at the end of the day, like we need, like we're not independent creatures. We're called to be in community and to trust one another and build that relationship is key. And I think, um, and even just in like your faith journey, like how do you trust in the Lord? And like, how do you trust in God and just continue to grow in that trust? And like, part of it's like, you have to like, just do it and just let it happen and be present. And, um, and I think like, that's just, I think a really powerful thing that I hope that our listeners can really take away from that. And maybe even just think of like, how do I restructure like an organization, if you're in charge of an organization, or if you ever become in charge of one to be built on relationship and trust and not on like the power that I have as an organization or the power of as a person to make sure all these things get done to do it with people, especially those that you might see as like different or, um, more more marginalized like that trust to work in the team with them I think it's life-changing and I think uh and I invite everyone to just kind of think through that of like imagine if you were to team up with people experiencing homelessness here in Houston and be like hey I want to build a team of homeless people that will bring food to their brothers and sisters and like I don't know how that would happen right now but like there's a trust that you can build in relationship with them to find ways to let them be a part of this work with it and I think um I'd love to see like this change of just like, hey, we're not the ones that's always giving all like we know the answers. Like, let's let them be a part of it too. And I think that would be really beautiful to see. Um, but Josh, uh, that, I love all these topics you're talking about. But I one of the things that I just like always wonder is just like you're talking about all these great things and all these awesome work that y'all are doing. But what does like a day in your shoes look like in the office? Um, and I know like some days might be boring, but like what is it, what does it look like for you? Yeah, it's like a spectrum, right? And you know, I'll say probably everybody is in the, in the, the, uh, the twilight zone of zoom this past year. And I'll say that I'm right there with you. <laughs> like we've had so many zoom calls, both internally. I mean, even here in our U S staff, you know, we've been remote for quite some time. And, and so it, it's not, it's certainly not glamorous by any means for a majority of the time. Like I said, we view ourselves as, you know, our, our purpose is to serve our international teams. And that means ensuring that, you know, everyone's aligned, investing in those trust relationships. And, and I'll just speak to that really quick. It's not sexy to do that. It's not fun. It's not the awesome thing. It's the like, it's the picking up the phone. It's, you know, just that, that water cooler talk that you just can't get away from. And if you have to do it over Zoom, like prioritize it. And so I would say a majority of our time is like that stuff, you know, and it's, it's sort of building and paying into that well. Um, but I will say, you know, and I'm looking forward to this day, you know, when we can travel a little bit more, but there's also those days where, you know, I get to sit down, um, in the Amazon jungle with our Colombian team 
and hop on a, a boat and, and drive out to, uh, or excuse me, row out to a, a community that, um, you know, has just gotten a pretty massive, you know, Santa Lucia, for example, is, is a community working in right now. And they have a big water tank coming in and they're actually piping the water out to the community. And um, I've been down to the Amazon region a hundred times, I feel like, and our team down there, Johnny Anderson, the country director and Jonathan and, and uh, Anna Maria, uh, they're all, it's just such lovely people. And, you know, those days look like sitting there in a beautiful place, even though you're getting bitten up by mosquitoes and watching people, um, you know, I think, be them that their best selves, you know, it's just like, it's amazing. Right. Like, and so, you know, I, I, I want to say like, for example, with Johnny Anderson, I've, I've watched him like a hundred times do trainings in front of communities. Uh, now with some of the filters actually that you guys are going to be a part of. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, those days when you get to watch somebody live in their element and just be what they were born to be, that makes all the other Zoom calls and all the sh budget sheets and all the stuff, you know, worth it. And I'm ready to go do a thousand more of those just to get one more of that, you know, amazing uh, experience in one of these places. So, um, you know, I I'd say a majority of it's the, the former, but I'm looking forward to the latter in the future and uh, it makes it all worth it. Really cool. No, that it's that sounds awesome. I think like a lot of people don't understand like this work. A lot of you got to put in a lot of time to have this like big moment. And it's even like, and even in campus ministry, like it's a lot of Zoom meetings. And like we have this big retreat that like grabs people, and it's really awesome. Or like we do all these meetings, and we go to Jamaica or do something like that. And I think it's just um, it's a lot of like things. And I think like after college, uh, or if you're out of college now, like that you experience this now. Um, and then there's this one moment, and I think uh, that definitely kind of resonates with me and I hope probably everyone else too. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting too, and I think we won't dive into this, but you're talking about this Amazon region and I'm sure you've seen like the, how the world has changed around this Amazon region and, and Pope Francis even has recognized this too. And um, he wrote this encyclical uh, last year, I believe about the Amazon region and how we need as a church need to find a new way to engage with this Amazon region because their ecosystem, their, um, their spiritual life and everything has um, completely been decimated. And I think like we need to find a way as a church to enter into a new relationship with the Amazon. And like, maybe it's partnering up with an organization like Wine to Water and hearing more about the work that they're doing. But we as a church need to do something. And I think, um, and I know it seems very far from us, but like if the Amazon disappears, what I don't know what else will happen, but um, we won't dive into that. But what I do want to talk a little bit more about just for the sake of time here is you're talking about all these awesome, unique, awesome opportunities. It's like a very like niche, like water, clean water, um, really unique opportunity that you fell into and that you've been working into. But like, as a, like, you didn't just end up there. Like, how did you get there? Like you start, you said you started this in your college experience. A lot of our listeners are college students. So like, what did that look like? And then how do you get to where you are now? Cause I think like, if you can show them a path, I think that'd be an awesome way of like showing you can take your passions and desires and care for the world and like end up where you are at the same time. Yeah, no, I'd say, uh, man, it started with like a sinking feeling of like, I don't know what I'm going to do and sitting in that, 
you know, and being like really wrestling with that. So I tell anybody listening who's like, who's living in that space of that, their guts just churning and they're like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to do something, but I don't know what it is. I tell you, good. <laughs> You're in a good place. I know it, it's, it's really challenging, but that is the first step. And that's a good thing that you have that wrestling. I personally was in that place. And I'll say, you know, my faith journey, I grew up not in the Catholic church, but in, in the Christian church and some different denominations or not just Christian, but different denominations in the Catholic um, church. And, and, you know, for me, I, what, what it was for me was sort of like this wrestling of like, this faith is so central to me, but I want to go further. I want to be a part of something that's tangible or that I can be a part of. And, and I, I had some more questions than answers. And the thing with Wine to Water that struck me and, and obviously with, with Doc's story and, and sort of our name is, you know, this idea that Jesus's first miracle was turning some really, really, really dirty water into some awesome, the best wine. And that the sole purpose for it was not to like help somebody more so than it was just helping them to keep a party going and to celebrate. And I thought that was just so beautiful and, and something that I wanted to like live out in my own life. And, you know, as I got into wine to water as a student, I, I literally just showed up, you know, like that's, you know, it's cliche to say, but half the battle is just like showing or more, more 90% of it's just showing up. And so I would encourage people just show up, like take that first step, even if it's scary and it may be at the campus ministry, it may be at the soup kitchen or whatever, um, or maybe at that internship for that corporate job that, you know, you, you're not sure if you want to like or not, you won't know until you know. And so for me, it showed, it was showing up at an interest meeting. And what I realized as I started to talk to these people was at Wine to Water at the time was there's this mentality of everyone has a seat at our table. And that resonated with me. It's like when Max said, you know, you don't have to be perfect to be a part of this. That was sort of the saving grace for me. And, and for me, like, that idea of like, yeah, I, I still have the gut feeling. I still have the wrestling, but I can be here now and be a part of this. I'll say it never went away. It's still there. And it's just a constant taking that step forward and in, in the next thing. And so if you got the wrestling, I'd just say the good, take that first step um, and try and figure out what it is and be okay with a couple of them not working out. Um, I personally can say that that's been a part of my journey as well. Um, but, you know, Wine to Water has been always one of those places for me personally that has been a seat at the table. And we like to say there's always a seat for others. So we've got an internship program. We have a chapter program, uh, both professionally, I will say, as well as, you know, still the college level. Um, we have an ambassador program. So if you're interested, we'd love to have you. you got We got a seat at the table for you. But I'd also say water's not for everybody either. And you guys may have something that is more passionate to you. Uh, I just say, take that step, go for it. You, you won't, you won't be disappointed. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I know. Uh, I always try to tell students like you're never going to like your vocation, like where you're being called, like you have to go out and serve and like experience these things to truly know if that's where like your heart's on fire, or you're experiencing joy there. And like your gifts are being used in that way. And I think like that just like go and try these things, like go out there. You have this time now, go and try like, all different things to figure out, hey, it's this where I feel this like passion or this fire inside my heart. And is this where the Lord's calling me to like do this work? And I think um, 
yeah, I think that's a great example of just kind of like, you just got to do it, y'all. You just got to take that step. Um, so I know our students, and you kind of been hinting at this, that like, y'all, we're about to get these filters. Um, and I know we're teaming up with Wine to Water around World Water Week, our World Water Day, and we're going to try to turn into a week experience for us on the campus of the University of St. Thomas. Um, we're getting ready to get filters down here. Could you kind of explain like what that's going to be, like what, what that experience will be like, and then like what does it do? What's the impact of it too? Yeah, sure. So we have this filter program where you'll get, you guys will all get bags. There'll be like, uh, I think it's roughly 13 pieces in this bag. And uh, the, the filter itself is based on kidney dialysis, a micro uh, membrane fil filter. And we use it in responses like Nepal relief and, and other places. Um, but what you guys will do is sit down and put it together. Uh, it's not going to take a lot of time, but it saves us so much time. Because if we got all these parts and had to put everyone together that we're going to go send to Nepal, we wouldn't be ready for that next earthquake or that next thing. So what you guys are going to do, and even the short amount of time that you're going to do it in, is hugely helpful to us. The other thing I'd say is there's a couple things that you'll also have in the bag which are, are integral to what a lot of we've been talking about. There's a little note card that's going to be in there, and we call it a field note. And we want you guys to write a note to that person that's going to receive that filter. Uh, and to, you don't, it doesn't have to be a manifesto of something amazing and these inspiring words. It can be anything from just, Hey, I love you. Or, Hey, I'm thinking of you or a heart, you know, an image. I can tell you, I've seen it in Cuba when we've done stuff, people, like churches that got filters down there actually wrote back to the people who built the filters. And so again, it's going back to, it's, it's not all about the filter. It's about the relationship and the community that comes out of it. And to your point, Max, like the communal, we, like we're communal beings. And so we want to use this, this program and what you guys are going to be a part of to become members, part of this bigger thing that we have as an organization. So you're going to put that stuff together. You're going to send it back to us uh, and we're going to get to somebody who needs it. Um, but we're excited for you guys to be a part of it. And, and we can't wait to, uh, to connect with you guys once uh, we get them out into the field and to somebody's hands that need them. Awesome. Thank you. No, that sounds awesome. Looking forward to the opportunity. And my final question for you today is, um, and it ties into this podcast, is lastly, could you answer how you are being a protagonist of change now? Yeah, I, I would say that for us as an organization right now, front and center is honestly our, our response in, in Texas right now. Uh, you guys have been through a tough, tough uh, few weeks. And so right now for us, this comes back to always leading or clarity through action. You know, there's oftentimes not knowing what, what the right step is. And, and it means that there's multiple steps you can take. And so for us as an organization, you know, constantly being on the front end of change and, and embracing it. And so for us right now, we're, we're actually sending about 250 filters to uh, the Houston College Station area uh, into some of the harder hit regions. Uh, that may be behind even on getting their water back. Uh, and we're partnering with some local volunteers there to get filters in the folks' hands uh, that need them. Um, and we'll see where it goes from there. We don't know if that means we'll do more work or if we need to partner up with other folks. But we're really trying to, again, be protagonist of change and embrace it. And to me, when I hear that, I hear embracing the new, embracing the unknown, rather than uh, trying to define what I know and then be comfortable. So I love the name and that's, uh, that's what we're trying to do right now to ensure that we, we hold true and stay accountable to that.
If you made it this far, thank you for sticking with us. This whole project is a labor of love, but we wanna hear from y'all. What does water mean to you? Let us know, hit us up on social, at Kelp Campus Men and at Max Studios UST on Instagram and Facebook. Share this with your friends, family, coworkers, and classmates. And every time you take a sip of water, take a moment to think of those in need. And a special thanks to Josh for taking the time to talk with us today. You've been listening to Protagonists of Change, a Max Studios production. I'm Max Lindell, and until next time, peace out.